You've been preached to already? Well, you haven't. Turn to the book of James. <laughs> Turn to the book of James, chapter four. I told Miranda to take as much time as she wants and I would adjust. So we obviously don't have time for a full exposition this morning, uh, but we will just give a summary of uh, John chapter four. And just to save time, we're just gonna read the passage as we go through it. James chapter four, you're supposed to read my mind. It's one of the J's. So uh, James chapter four, and we will read the text just as we, as we exegete it. But, um, you know, I saved our, um, I saved our recognition of veterans for today because I knew that even though it was gonna be a week late, I knew that uh, our addiction ministry was coming. And uh, beloved, there is no more vivid example of spiritual warfare than when you are dealing with an addiction. And, um, and so we wanted to talk about this this morning because as I said, we are, we are all addicts. Every one of us. I may not be addicted to what you're addicted to, um, but we are all addicts. We are all addicts to our, our pleasing sin, uh, whatever it is that we think will give us satisfaction other than Christ. And so uh, we wanna talk about spiritual warfare this morning just very briefly. And um, you know, we recognized our veterans and we are so thankful for them but the truth is, is that if you are in Christ, you are a soldier. You are involved in the conflict. You are engaged in the conflict. And, and so often we talk about the church and family metaphors, uh, brother, sister, the family of God, those kinds of things. But the family is not the only metaphor that is spoken of in the church and scripture. In fact, it's not even the most prevalent. The most prevalent is that the church is an army. And you see that imagery. In fact, the very first mention of the church by Christ himself in Matthew 16 is that he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And what? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Beloved, that is a military image. We see Paul in one of his most famous passages talking about the armor of God. That is military imagery. He talks about uh, Timothy to be a good soldier. That is military imagery. In fact, Paul, at the very end of his life, in the last letter that we have that he wrote, uh, he says, I have fought the good fight. That is what a soldier does. And so military imagery, beloved, we are involved in a war. We are not a cruise ship. We are a battleship. We are not the church glorified, we are the church militant, and we need every Christian must be involved in the conflict. Our weapons are different. We do not use the weapons of the flesh. We do not use carnal weapons of the world. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 10.4, but the battle is no less real. The enemies are no less determined. Every Christian must be involved in spiritual warfare. We must be involved. You cannot sit on the sideline. You cannot wear the uniform and not fight. Now, I use spiritual warfare a little, um, a little hesitantly because when you talk about spiritual warfare, some different images come in your head. Uh, for some, they tend to just kind of ignore it. 
They say that there's really no spiritual conflict. All of our bodies, all of our thoughts are really nothing other than chemical reactions. And so there's really no spiritual realities behind these things. And then you also have those who are kind of overly hyperactive. You know, if you've ever seen Hollywood and the, and the head spinning on the shoulder about a thousand miles per hour, I'm happy to say that only happens once or twice in our house per week. It's usually Roxanne at me. But... <laughs> Regardless, we know that, that that is not what it is, but we also see almost a medieval superstition that, that you know, there's a demon hiding behind every rock that's ready to jump out at you. And, and I've talked to people before who said that whenever they're in the shower, they feel like the demon, they're just, they're just fighting the shower because that's like the demons attacking them every morning and that's kind of their process. And, uh, and uh, I was like, no, brother, you need your shower. So... <laughs> And by the way, just so you know, having your own space for the bathroom, that's just important to guys as it is to ladies. So <laughs> I do want to mention that. So, uh, you know, some people kind of walk around properties so many times until the name of the demon is revealed and, and then they'll walk backwards and all that kind of stuff. A little hyperactive. But Regardless of those extremes, we all must be involved in the conflict. Spiritual warfare is real. It is very real and it is no less intense than warfare. And so there's two overarching strategies that we see here. And I'm just gonna go over them real quick. The first one is that we must recognize our enemies. We must recognize our enemies. Shun Tzu, the famous... Uh, military strategist, ancient Chinese military strategist. He said that in order to defeat your enemy, you must first know who your enemy is. We would refer to that today as intelligence gathering, and we need to gather intelligence against our enemies. And they are many, and we're going to begin in verse 7, where we see that the Christian, in the Christian life, we have three primary enemies. Number one is the devil. Number one is the devil in verse 7. Let me get to verse seven. It says, Draw, uh, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We must resist the devil. He is our first enemy, the greatest enemy of all humanity, that great opponent of God's plan. He's the accuser of the brothers, and he is very powerful. But he is not a God. He is not omniscient. He is not omnipotent. That is to say, he is not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. But beloved, if your smartphone knows so much about you, you can only imagine how much Satan knows about you. And he knows how to tempt you. He knows how to bait the hook so that you see the worm, but you don't see the hook. He knows how to do this. He attacks the church, the message of the church. He distorts the gospel. He attacks the mission of the church. He takes our minds off of evangelism, off of making disciples. He sows discord and division, brings about distractions. And yes, he does attack the members of the church. Yes, in fact, oftentimes, unfortunately, the Christian home is one of the greatest places of struggle in the Christian life. That's sad, but it's true. So many homes are broken. Some families hide it better. But the truth is, so many homes are broken. Beloved, if, if you just knew what I know, and I don't know much, but if you just knew what I know, 
you would know, yes, some homes and some white suburbanite subdivisions, they hide it a lot better, but they are no less broken than the rough side of town, I promise you. And so we must be aware of Satan, but Satan is defeated, amen? And he can be resisted. He has been restrained. I believe that's what Revelation uh, 20 is talking about, that he has been restrained. His, his work is being, is being filtered and under control. We thank the Lord for that, but the second enemy is the world. The second enemy is the world. Look in verses four through six. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. To save time, I'll stop there. Not this physical world, not this physical planet Earth, but... We do know that the system of the world has set itself up in order to try to make the Christian fail. The world, in a very real sense, is against you. The world, in a very real sense, is out to get you if you are a child of God. Society, as all of it lies in the grip of our enemy. Philosophies, teachings, all of it is under his control. This is why Paul calls the devil the God of this world. He's not the God of the physical planet. No, all the hills of a thousand hills belong to our Lord our God. Everything belongs to him. But as far as the system is concerned, as far as the corruptness that we see, all of it lies in the, in, the, in the grip and in the sway of Satan. And beloved, the world is not out to help a Christian grow in Christ. Hollywood is not gonna help you. And I dare say so much of psychology and the social sciences are not gonna help you. There's some good stuff out there, but there's also a lot of bad stuff out there. None of that is gonna help you. It doesn't mean that God doesn't have control, but it does mean that to be a friend of the world is to, to be a friend of its teachings, its priorities, is to be an enemy of God. And it is foolish to think we will win the loss to the gospel by being like the world. It will not happen. That is a fool's errand. Ephesians chapter six, verse 12 says, that our enemies, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, etc. All of that in heavenly places. First John 5, 4 says that for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Ladies, Christ has overcome your addiction for you. He has. You are not addicts. You are children of God who struggle with addiction. I am not, name your sin. I'm a child of God who struggles with sin. And your identity says everything about you. And my identity is that I am in Christ. And beloved, if you are in Christ, that is your identity. That's where you start. Amen? Amen. And so the world... Satan is restrained, the world is overcome, but there is a third enemy that we see in verses one and three, and that is our, I believe, our most dangerous enemy because it is the most upfront and close and personal, and that is the flesh. 
the flesh. Where What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war with you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covenant and cannot contain, obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. The flesh, and I believe the flesh is our greatest enemy. You can escape the world. You cannot escape your flesh. How many times have we moved to a different place or moved to a different house or, or said something and, and said, well, we're, when I get there, I, I'm, I'm going to leave everything behind and I'm gonna turn over a new leaf only to fall into the same habits over and over and over again. Why? You might've left the world, but you didn't leave your flesh. Your flesh comes with you. Your flesh comes with you. And you know, it's crazy. This is the one that is most neglected. You know, these, your, your kind of more fundamentalist churches, they'll rage against the world. Some of your more spirited churches, charismatic churches, they'll rage against the devil and the demonic, but no one is talking about the flesh. And yet it is our greatest enemy. It's a tragic neglect, a very dangerous neglect. You cannot escape your flesh. You wake up with it, you go to bed with it at night. It is there. The focus of our warfare, beloved, is the spirit and the flesh. And that is how James put this. Where does all this come from? Where does all this trouble come from? It comes from the passions that are within us. That's the flesh, that, that indwelling sin principle that even though we are in Christ, there is still a remaining sin that we must contend with, a process the Bible calls sanctification. We are in a continual process of putting off the old person, putting on the new person. And so often we want to put the blame on the devil or the world. We don't want to take responsibility for our own flesh. That's dangerous. Our flesh is what Satan and the world uses to get in. They're allies. They would not be able to touch you if it weren't for your flesh. Do you understand that? Look at uh, James chapter one, verse 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one, but watch this. But each person is tempted when he is lured, that's the devil, enticed, that's the world, by his own desire. You see that? Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. Beloved, Satan would not be able to tempt you with sin if there were not already a desire in your heart for that sin. I am, uh, this last year, I've been trying to get a lot healthier. You can see it's going along pretty well. Um, I've been trying to eat better. I've been trying to uh, lower my calories down to no more than 2,200 calories a day. And can you imagine someone coming in here, Melinda might do this because she's a smart aleck, and she might come in here with 3,000 calories of Brussels sprouts and say, just eat 3,000 calories today, brother. It won't hurt you. And yes, she does it with Brussels sprouts. Beloved, that is not going to tempt me because I don't like Brussels sprouts. You can put Brussels sprouts in front of me all day long. I am not tempted by it. Put a dozen donuts in front of me and watch what happens. But, <laughs> but you are not gonna tempt me for something that I have no desire for in the first place. You see, the flesh is what the devil in the world uses. And so the center of all spiritual warfare, beloved, is our flesh. 
It is that remaining sin that Satan uses to entice us. Thomas Brooks, in his wonderful book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, he says this. He says, whatever sin the heart of man is most prone to, that the devil will help forward. And so, what do we do? What do, what, what do we do? If it's not for the flesh, the world and the devil would have no sway. We recognize our enemies. Understand, yes, we are fighting the devil. Yes, we are fighting the world. But my most dangerous, my most dangerous opponent is Randy Scott. That's my most dangerous adversary. And praise be to God that I'm not fighting this battle on my own. Amen. The Holy Spirit of God indwells me. I have a new nature fighting against the old nature. I have new desires. I have new ambitions. I have a new church to glean from your wisdom and to lean from and, and turn to in times of help. That's all of the Lord. It's all of the Lord. So what do we do? What is our battle plan? Verse, verse seven, again, what do we do? We submit ourselves to God. Submit ourselves to God. Resist the devil, he will flee. Sounds easy, right? Just submit to God. Go home. It's not very helpful, is it? Not very. What does it mean to submit to God? Well, praise the Lord, James tells us exactly what he's talking about. We cannot win the battle on our own. So submitting to ourselves to the Lord, what does that look like? And so in verse eight, we see number one, to draw near to God. Draw near to God. We cannot win this battle on our own by ourselves. We will lose so we draw near to the one who's already won the battle for us. We draw near to the one who has all strength, who has all power. Why would we rely on our weak strength when we can rely on the one who is omnipotent? Why would we rely on our own insufficient knowledge when we can rely on the one who is omniscient? We don't even know our own hearts. We don't even understand why we react the way we do sometimes, but God does because he knows us perfectly. He knows the deception of our hearts. He knows how we can self-justify sin. He knows that we, how we can do all this. And he is the one that we draw near to. Don't be fooled. The war is won. Jesus has crushed the serpent's head. He has defeated death, hell, and the grave. We have won. The battle, the war has won. Beloved, Jesus does not need a participation trophy. He got the first place trophy. He got the only trophy. He has won. You and I are the living, breathing, walking, talking trophies of his grace. And the prize he has won is his church, his lovely bride, each and every one of us. Why on earth would you fight this battle on your own? Why would you try to do that? How do we draw near to God? By his appointed means, we could talk about scripture, we could talk about the church and fellowship, we could talk about worship, we could talk about service. I just wanna point out prayer. Because in the midst of the battle and that, that frontal assault and those skirmishes, prayer is while we must most immediately draw near to God. J.C. Ryle, acknowledged by many as the last Puritan, 
He says that prayer and sinning will never live together in the same heart. Prayer will consume sin or sin will choke out prayer. Prayer and sin cannot live in the same heart. Prayer will either consume sin or sin will choke prayer. And so, beloved, we must draw near to God in prayer. It comes with a promise when we draw near to him. He will draw near to us. Number two, just very quickly, I know we're out of time. Deny yourself. Deny yourself. Look at verse eight of chapter four, not chapter two. Four, three. Verse eight says, draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded What's he talking about here? This is imagery from the tabernacle. This is imagery from the temple. And this is the process that priests would go through to draw near to God, to the Holy of Holies. They would cleanse themselves, say a series of cleansings as they would go in. So he uses that imagery. But then he says, he goes on and says, purify your hearts. What does that mean? He goes on to tell us, you double-minded. In other words, set your affections on Christ and let go of your other affections. Let go of whatever is challenging your heart for first place. Whatever is challenging you. In other words, we must die to self. Christ says, if anyone would follow after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. He's not talking about a little gold pendant. He's talking about that ugly thing that you die on. And we must die to self. That kind of helps us explain the kind of weird verses that follow in verse nine. Be wretched and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Boy, that sounds great, doesn't it? But beloved, this is often what denying yourself will feel like. This is what denying yourself, this is what you'll go through. You'll mourn, you'll weep, your joy, what used to give you joy will turn to mourning What used to make you laugh or turn to gloom, what you thought was giving you joy, you now know that all those things were lying to you. They were setting you up to ambush you and take you down in your testimony. Wretched, mourn, weep, moving in gloom, what in the world? Make no mistake, this is what denying yourself will do. At first, at first. How's that work? Philippians 3.19, I've, I've actually shared this verse with addicts before as I've helped a few. And there's this one verse here, this one phrase in this verse, whose end is destruction. And notice what I have underlined there, whose God is their appetite. Some of your, some of your translations say belly, but the idea is their appetites, right? Their, their physical desires, what they want, right? And I want you to notice there's two issues there. Number one is that there is a worship disorder, right? They've got the wrong God. Their God is their appetite. So there is a worship disorder, first of all. And you've got to take care of the worship disorder first. But beloved, often when we turn to God, the appetites don't immediately go away, do they? No. They often don't. The appetite must be denied. The appetite must be denied. You cannot continue to feed the appetite 
You must deny it. And when we correct the worship disorder, no, the appetites don't immediately disappear, but we, place, but we replace it with a greater love for Christ. The only way to get rid of an idol, the only way to lose your love for one thing is to develop a greater love for something else. That's the only way. That's the only way it works. Regardless of what your idol is, that's the only way it works. You and I have an insatiable desire to worship. And whatever it is that we are trying to fill our hearts with is limited and it will disappoint us. The only thing that can satisfy an insatiable heart is the infinity of God. That is the only thing that will keep us coming back and keep satisfying over and over and over again. Oh, beloved, we will spend all eternity in heaven learning the riches and depths of God's grace and we will never come to the end of it. All eternity. We'll be digging deeper and deeper and deeper and he will satisfy us for all eternity. Why would you settle for something less? Why? Oh, sinner, repent. Turn away from your, from your idols. Turn away from your false gods who have lied to you and turn to Christ, the only one who is strong enough to keep you and even when you're too weak to hold on to him. And so deny yourself. We cannot win this battle without Christ. And the last one in verse 10, depend on grace. Depend on grace. Verse 10, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord. Let go of yourself. Come to Christ as you are. You don't have to clean up before you come to Christ. In fact, if you notice, remember I told you it was temple imagery and, and the temple and the, the priests, they had to cleanse their hands. They had to wash and, and do all this stuff in order to draw near to the Lord. Did you notice that James reversed the order? That he says, first draw near to the Lord and then by his strength, you cleanse your hands. That is not an accident. That is not a slip of the pen. That is exactly what James meant because under the old temple system and under any law, I have got to cleanse my hands before I can draw near to God. But now under Christ, I draw near to him first and then by his strength, I'm able to cleanse my hands. Praise the Lord for that, amen? You think you can cleanse yourself clean enough to come to God? You can't do that, it's foolish. Before the gospel of Jesus Christ, we could not live the Christian life. Can't live it in your own strength. You may be able, out of sheer willpower, to muscle your way out of whatever sin you're struggling with, but when you do that, you'll just fall right back into another one. I've seen so many who, yes, they have muscled their way out of alcoholism only to fall into workaholicism. So many who have muscled their way out of one sin only to fall into another one. Even if it's pride, arrogance, and unlovingness. Why not admit that you need the one who won the war for you? Don't try to muscle your way out of this, you can't. 
You can only take the strength and the power of Jesus Christ, who, according to the, according to the prophet of Isaiah, bears his arm to come to our aid. How many of you guys like wrestling? I didn't say wrestling. That happens at the Olympics. I said wrestling. That happens on TBS. <laughs> you know what happens at wrestling? You know what they do? They come out ready for battle, and what do they do? They're flexing. They're bearing their arms, and they're doing all of this stuff. Why? Because they are ready to go to the war. Beloved, the Lord has flexed his arms for you. And he is ready to go to war for you. And he has already won the war. Come to him. Admit you need the one who won the war. That's how you win. That's how you overcome the world. I can't think of any better way to close than Thomas Brooks once again from Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. He says this, there is everything in Christ to encourage the greatest sinners to believe on him to rest and lean upon him for all happiness and blessedness. Christ is the greatest good, the choicest good, the chief good, the most suitable good, the most necessary good, a pure good, a real good, a total good, an eternal good, a soul self-satisfying, a soul satisfying good. Sinners, are you poor? Christ has gold to enrich you. Are you naked? Christ has royal robes and white clothing to clothe you. Are you blind? Christ has eye salve to enlighten you. Are you hungry? Christ will be manna to feed you. Are you thirsty? He will be a well of living water to refresh you. Are you wounded? He is a balm under his wings to heal you. Are you sick? He is a physician to cure you. Are you prisoners? He has laid down a ransom for you. Come to Christ. Know his strength. Are you here this morning and you don't know the power of Jesus Christ in your life? You've heard testimonies of it over and over and over again. Maybe you need, maybe you need his salvation this morning. I'd invite you to come. Do you have a sin that you're struggling with? I'd love to talk to you. And I would love to know. I would love for you to know the power of Christ in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. I thank you for the patience of our people as they have endured to a little later than normal. But Lord, we ask that if there's one here this morning, that we would still be available. We'd still be willing to wait. We'd still be willing to spend and be spent so that Christ may come into someone's life today. Or whatever their need is, I am I pray that they will come and that they will find solutions and satisfaction for their soul. Lord, save us not so that you may make much of us, but save us so that by your grace, we may make much of you. I invite you to stand and just reflect on the things we've talked about today. If you have a need this morning, I'd invite you to come. Uh, Todd, if you... If one of yours would like to come down and, and you want to stand up here and be available for counsel, you can. I would ask you to just bow your heads and just reflect on what you have heard as, we, as our musicians play. If you have a need this morning, we invite you to come. 
have a sin you're struggling with? Do you have a habit you can't let go of? Whatever it is, just say, I need to draw near to God. I need, I need to get more serious about my faith. Whatever it is, come this morning.